baby, what time is it? <laughs> Welcome to MMA FanCast. I'm Luke Payson. I'm joined here as always by my co-host Jim Mooney. Jim and I recently had the opportunity to work um, in a really great way for 247 Fighting Championships. And due to the fact that we host this program, we thought it would be a great idea to give our listeners some behind the scenes of what we did and our experiences. And also, we hope to do things like this for 247 in the future, and maybe even for other promotions as well. So to kick us off, Jim, you had kind of a very diverse role for 247 Fighting Championships that happened back April 6th. What would you have called your position um, for that promotion? I would have called my position jack of all trades because I was involved with the weigh-ins, setting up for the weigh-ins, bringing the truck in for the cage, setting up the cage, tables, chairs, um, getting security, familiarized with the event, concessions, getting radio set up. I'm trying to think of what maybe I didn't do. The only thing about the only thing I didn't do were tickets, but uh, my wife helped out with tickets. So, you know, um, vicariously, I did tickets through her. There we go. That kind of sounds. That kind of sounds like what I might consider uh, a fight coordinator or an event coordinator. I don't know the exact term, but obviously you were. I know for the UFC they have on the ground teams or they have uh, event teams because clearly Dana White doesn't do what you were just doing. And so somebody that coordinates all those behind the scene things. Now, on a very interesting note, can you tell me a little bit about the cage and the process of setting it up for the first time? And what was it like to deal with the, the, the physical bulk of a cage? For our listeners, before you answer that question, Jim, as you're thinking, keep in mind, listeners, that a boxing ring is actually less size. You know, the ropes are, are the majority of it. You've got the four corners, the ropes, and then the biggest amount of physical space is the floor of the boxing ring. Other than that, it's actually fairly easy, whereas in a cage, you have a lot more because you're actually bringing in side paneling and all bunch of doors and all that type of stuff. So what was it like with the cave? First, it was cumbersome. It's the easiest way to put it. It was definitely labor intensive. On average, I guess, depending on the size of the cage, the width of it, they weigh anywhere from like 5,000 to 6,000 pounds. I just looked that up today. Woo! The putting together of that cage is... It's like putting a, a puzzle together because every piece, iron bars, the, um, the stanchions, the light stanchions, the actual padding, the, uh, the flooring, mm -hmm. those are all numbered and they are also color-coded. And they're color-coded red and blue, just like you, you have red corner, blue corner. So right. setup time was probably, like once we had everything out, that probably took about two hours, two to two and a half hours just for the cage setup. Mm -hmm. But then you had to uh, factor in things like the lighting, um, getting the lighting rigging set up, and then right. you've got to raise it up once you have your cat catwalk set up around the ring. Then you raise up your lighting. You take it up to about cage, the top of the, uh, the rail, um, top of the cage, and you start aiming your lighting. And there mm. are... Um, there are six hand cranks where you raise them up. So you need six guys at one time to raise these lights up. Take them up okay. about, um, two feet at a time, aim the lights. And then when you think you've got everything set up um, to where the lights are going to be right, then um, you have the arena, somebody with the arena, drop the lights so that you can do a, a mock live lighting and, and cast okay. them on 
on the arena or out on, right. the, um, on the cage. Once you think you have everything set up, now you have somebody who literally stands on the top rail and he goes from one light to the next. And now the camera crew is involved. Okay. Uh, there was a crew that did the, uh, the, the pay-per-view. We the cut and run guys. Yeah, the cut and run guys. Yes, yes. We okay. adjust the lighting according to what they can see on camera. Mm. So I didn't even think about something like that when we initially started doing this. We did a mock setup a few months ago. And then the setup, I didn't even factor in camera or a, a photographer or anything like that. Well, let me actually uh, park on that for a second. Thanks for that description. Obviously, one of the things we want to do on MMA FanCast is really talk about stuff that interests fans. And I think this actually can be interesting to fans because obviously most people are going to watch the UFC and not even think about it. Although the UFC has done some statistics about their different size cages because they have a larger cage and a smaller cage and more knockouts happen, obviously, in smaller cages than larger cages. And so at some point, Dana might mandate all smaller cages for more knockouts. But one of the things to point out is I've been at regional shows uh, when I used to be at a lot of regional MMA shows on the East Coast of Pennsylvania. And I have physically been to shows where there were dark patches, visual, you know, not light patches in the cage during the fight. And there were times where you'd be able to fight, the lights would be down, right? The lights would be down, they'd have lights on, but because of focusing issues, and, and obviously that might be hard for us to understand, but I wanted to just quickly describe that I have been at at least three live fights where there were times where being 10, 15 feet away looking in, you couldn't really see what was happening in certain areas of the cage or ring because the fighters had moved out of where the lights were uh, because the lights weren't focused correctly. So even though that might sound kind of uh, weird that all this time would have been given into the lights, I know as a, as a corner man, as one of those fights, it was very hard for my fighter, they kept going in and out of light, and I kept, you know, confusing them. Um, and also, it was hard for us to, to corner, not to mention people judging. So, was there ever a time in the setup where there, you had a dark spot in the cage and had to fix it? Yeah, that was actually okay. the very first time that, that we had the lights raised all the way up. And when we thought that it was good, we dropped mm -hmm. it down again, and then somebody from Cut and Run said that they had dark right. spots. We took it back all the way, all the way back right. up. Once he said that, then I could, I could see like three or four dark spots okay. in in the corners. Right. It, you know, see things like that give me a greater appreciation for, yeah, uh, for uh, Bellator and UFC, and you know, watching sure. actually going to other regional events and seeing what what they do, comparing it to, to what I went through and knowing now what it takes to get that done. Obviously, UFC and Bellator are on a much larger scale, but it's neat to see how you can start with a blank sheet of paper, so to speak, yep. and then you end up with a crowd full of people um, going nuts over uh, some heavy-hitting action. Well, thanks for giving us a little bit of details on the cage and the lighting, because obviously I agree with you, that does relate a lot to what fans just come to expect. Overall, what was the most, we'll, we'll start with the good, what was the most exciting part of the behind-the-scenes job you did, whether it be the concession or organizing all sort of the stuff for the load-in or the load-out or the setup or the tear-down? What was the kind of the most fulfilling or exciting part of, of your behind-the-scenes job? It's hard to really put... A description on this but just going back uh, on the history of how I got involved with this you know myself mm -hmm. and um, and Ryan Middleton started sure. um, all this out of UFC 203 talked about doing a, a podcast and a website we came home from that event and within a month's time we were on iTunes and right it uh, and all all the uh, social media platforms out there, Facebook and Twitter. And we, mm -hmm. you know, this was like pie in the sky for us. And we thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could get credential? So right. that, that was stemming off of uh, the website called octagon247.com. Um, hence, you know, that's part of how 247 fighting championships came to be. 
Um, right. One of the things that was kind of like a, a little um, pat on the back or on the shoulder was when I saw the 247 stickers going <laughs> on the um, the pipes canvas. on the canvas, um, saw right. them on the, uh, on the gloves for the fighters. Yeah. Just, you know, little details like that. I, uh, I, I just watched um, some UFC footage last night. They have UFC on their gloves, and that immediately made me think of that Saturday night when 247 put on the first event. It just, you know, little details like that are what intrigue me about how all these little things come together to make something big. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and a big part of what Ryan Middleton, the owner of 2% Fighting Championship, really aimed for um, was learning, you know, taking and learning from his involvement and him being a fan and really enjoying it and kind of starting a little bit above ground level. Obviously, as a first-time show, it is technically ground level, but ground level with pay-per-view at, at regional level almost never happens. I can say having been involved and a lot of behind the scenes, and just as a coach having fighters, uh, there's been good title fights. I've been to fights where pros fought for titles where there was no video or announcers or pay-per-view, which is going to lead into what I did, right? But um, and talking about what I did, but also things like the gloves to take a little jab at the UFC. If you look at the first 40 pay-per-views, I think it was right around 40 or 50, their gloves were just black. They had no I didn't even thought to put UFC on them. And you could probably see that one of the most famous fights where that's an example is the tough finale one where Stefan Bonner and Forrest Griffin, obviously that, that one gets a lot of watches. That one right. still gets watched a lot, but the season finale of tough one in 04 where it really kicked things off. But if you look at that now, and I have rewatched it because who doesn't like that fight, it seems weird that they're just fighting in black gloves that nobody had thought to put UFC. So even UFC in 04, wasn't at the level where 247 is as far as some of those little touches like putting putting on um, the gloves. And, and I thought the canvas was really nice. And another thing that Ryan did, which we might talk to when we interview him, is he really came on strong with sponsors, you know, in a good way. And that's actually something that the UFC did back in the day. They went from not really having sponsors to having sponsors. I think they've struck out a little bit with the Reebok and some other sponsorship deals, but obviously having sponsorships. And that's something that, the cage reflected and some of what Ryan brought to it was really starting at a level where it's a good cage where they have a catwalk for those that don't know the catwalk is a platform that goes around the cage. And I know it was a problem for you, right? The catwalk mm. became a problem, but that's designed to give more access for the video cameras and for other people that might need to kind of get a view of the cage to have that area to walk around. Um, but if we could flip it over, I, but right before we start talking about what I did, because obviously we're going to kind of take half half of the interview here, is what is something that you can't wait to do the next time? So July 27th, 247 Fighting Championship is going to return to Princecape Arena in Cannonsburg. And what's one part of what you did that you can't wait to do again? Well, I, I know this might sound – I guess it depends on – what uh, what your interests are. My background is service technician. I like the aspect of getting something to work that previously didn't. There sure. were uh, there were some lights that were uh, in disrepair, I guess you could say. And we had there were four lights that didn't work. We had to, and we had a bunch of extra lights, lighting cans. Some of them were different sizes, different size bulbs. We literally had to break them down and take parts from them and put them back together to make four new lights. So that was kind of at the end of that process. Um, and just a little before we raised the lights, we had all the lights tested. One of the things that I didn't get to do was dress up the, uh, the electrical, um, electrical wiring, the way that it ran through the cage work. You wouldn't really notice it watching a pay-per-view or even if you were there as a fan. But for me, it's little details like that that always stick with me, and that's something that I want to address. And I've already talked with Ryan, and I gave him a game plan for what I want to do. So I want to go forward, get that cage and the lighting and the platform and the mat 
and get everything looking as crisp and polished and clean as possible. Because I, I see little things um, as I go back and I watch that event <laughs> and I think, oh, we need to do that. Oh, we need to take yeah. care of that. And so I made a list that night of different things that I, I thought needed addressed, and that, that list is now tripled. Well, and I think that's something, you know, when you think about a list, I think one of the other times people think about a, a, a checklist would be like a wedding or a reception. And, and, and when people are planning a wedding or planning like a big time party or a reception for a wedding, people don't think about how much the, the list really is until you start trying to do it. And in a way, this event is way bigger than a wedding. There was around 700 people in attendance, maybe a little more, but that would be my ballpark. And so that's a huge number of people to organize. And then of course, the, the cage and wanting to get that right. I actually think having a checklist and getting it, even if it is triple, makes a lot of sense. And I can't wait to see what it's like when we do this chat maybe after the July 27th card to see maybe that list gets solidified and now you know exactly what you're doing and it works perfectly. Maybe you take some things away, maybe you add some things. But I'd say by the November card because 247 Fighting Championships is already scheduled through uh, Thanksgiving Eve of 2019. I'd say by the third is really well where you will know if you're on it or not. You know, but All right. Um, but yeah, it's been great. It's been great talking about what you did, and I, and I think somebody appreciating the the person and people behind the physical facility setup which is kind of what you did. You did a lot of the facility setup, which is cool. Um, so we'll flip it around now. Now you'll become the interviewer for me, and I'll get to talk about what I did for two versus seven fighting championships. So it's over to you, Jim. Having you as my podcast partner and then seeing you, just knowing you know some of your history and then seeing you cage side and getting prepped and ready to do a pay-per-view and announcing for that, that to me was pretty interesting. I could not wait to pick your brain after the fights so my first question is when you were sitting there and the fight was about to start was there anything or you were about to go live on pay-per-view was there anything that you had done leading up to that sitting there and uh and working with Bubba who was uh who was doing the play-by-play anything that you felt like maybe we should have done this one more time or Oh, that's a good we didn't cover this. No, I mean, I, to kind of start into it, one of the advantages, I have done some color and play-by-play for professional and amateur uh, Muay Thai uh, prior to this. So live fighting, similar environment, having to really focus in. That's one thing I knew, um, that when you do play-by-play or color or any type of live stream, pay-per-view or live stream, is – you got to really stay focused on what's happening because obviously there'll be crowd noise and you never know what's going to happen. So I was kind of prepared for that. But one thing that really helped me feel prepared when I sat down, I introduced myself to Bubba Snyder, who's fairly well known as a, as a disc jockey and personality, radio personality from Pittsburgh. Um, And we talked beforehand. And one of the things that I was able to tell him right off the bat that really kind of settled us as far as our background was that you and I on this, on this podcast had interviewed, had interviewed four of the six professional fighters. So there was three professional fights on the card, and that obviously is six fighters, and we'd interviewed four of those six on this podcast. And so obviously kind of being the color guy and knowing that depending on what happens, I, I, re- I remember when we interviewed Showtime um, that he talked about wanting to be a lawyer. And so I'm pretty sure I threw that in there at some point in the in – the, uh, as co- – Color, so I felt good. What, what Bubba had brought to it is Bubba brought um, kind of a checklist, not, not so much a checklist, but sort of he wrote out um, each fight. And so we kind of came up with our own flashcards or cue cards for ourselves uh, to get some information down. You, you'll kind of see this occasionally when they used to zoom in on uh, Mike Oberg and Joe Rogan back when they were doing uh, for the UFC. You, you'll see them looking down. The ability to take notes on the fly and kind of know what you might want to record was important. And then for me, having watched a lot of uh, YouTube on some of the fighters, there were a, a few debut fighters. Now, as a coach I and, and as a commentator, I love debut fighters because you're just seeing what they get. You know, you don't, you don't really have to look back at any fights. You just look at them and say, okay, well, what are they kind of learning? What are they kind of working on? Whereas 
Uh, obviously, all the pros were very experienced. The pros had a lot of experience. And so I felt pretty good overall. But there was a cool moment. There was two cool moments. As far as I wouldn't say jitters, but excitement. One was when Bob and I were announcing live to the pay-per-view we're about ready to have the first punch ever thrown. I remember saying that, you know, here we go for the fir first punch ever thrown cool. in the fighting championship between the debut, you know, the, the first the first fight. And then we had a similar moment where we came back from intermission and it was pro. And, you know, and when, when you watch amateur MMA and you see the shin guards and you know that they don't have ground and pound, there was a lot of rules. And I thought Bubba did a good job of asking me, to kind of explain, and that's something that you'll never see on the UFC. You know, they're never going to explain the difference between professional and amateur because the UFC only does professional, which is beautiful, and it's great, and so does Bellator and WSF. It's kind of the bigger ones. But when you're a commentator and, and you get to explain sort of why and what amateur rules look like, one thing we didn't get to explain, which I guess we'll just keep for the future, is that in the state of Pennsylvania, there's actually advanced amateur rules. I was trying to explain it to Bubba when he was asking me to kind of fill in the audience, but then the fight happened, and so we didn't get a chance. But there's actually three levels. There's professional, which, which we saw as far as the rule set. There's amateur, which we saw as a rule set. There was actually a third rule set, which is advanced amateur. Uh, but there was two moments. The moment when we were about ready to have the first fight ever for 247 fighting championships and also the, the first fight of the pros felt special because knowing that 247 had gotten to a point of having professional MMA is important. And then also calling it just felt more exciting because with pros, there's knees to the face. We had a little knee to the face, but nothing, nothing major. But I knew, you know, elbows, knees, things get a lot more exciting, a lot quicker. If you think about Venom Page, the knockout of Cyborg, you know, those right, type of things yeah. happen a lot more in pros. Um, so I would just say excitement. I felt excited. Uh, Bubba had actually meant to kind of give some, some behind the scenes for uh, the the five people listening to us is the event started at 7 p.m. And I'm sure there was a, a time where where you would have wanted more time because you, you can never quite be ready. But we got there, Bubba and I got there at 4 p.m. Uh, to meet with the production crew that was going to do the pay-per-view. Pay you were already there hard at work, kind of what we had already talked about. But it was I thought it was kind of cool because when I got there at 4, I thought, Man, I mean, that's three hours between four and seven, but that time was used up quickly with Mike Checks, doing some walkthroughs, figuring some stuff out with Drew Shannon, who did the uh, ring announcing, you know, kind of figuring out how we were going to do that, when he would go, when he would go, take the mic first, when we were on the mic, sort of the back and forth there. Uh, the cut and run guys really wanted us to be aware of, they, they did a lot of uh, images that would come up. Sometimes it was about rules. Sometimes it was slow motion or replay. Sometimes it was uh, the tail of the tape. So they wanted us to be familiar with what that stuff would look like. Sure. Um, so the time went very quickly. I also was writing out things I wanted to, to comment and what we wanted to do. And it was probably, oh, I'm going to say it was maybe 20 minutes before 7, before we went live, where I realized that I hadn't, I, we had all this information down about the fighters, but I hadn't put down their home gym because you get all this we had their home where they were from where they're fighting out of and all this but then i quickly went back and put home gym for both myself and and bubble because you never really know what information you want to throw out on a live on a live um event we didn't have a we didn't have a knockout in the first 20 seconds i had a fighter years ago that had a 24 7 a 24 second knockout we called him 24 second chuck uh, because of that reason. But I can only imagine if I was announcing his fight <laughs> that you wouldn't have gotten you wouldn't have gotten anything out about him because then it's over. So uh, it was fun. It was an exciting time. Bubba's a great play-by-play. -play and, and he kind of told me his focus is play-by-play. is just to call what he sees. Um, and then he kind of wanted me to bring in some of the other stuff that I was noticing and seeing. And it was a fun experience to work with somebody. And also, uh, Bubba and I were talking I had never had the experience. I don't think he'd had the experience before of having, maybe he has obviously as a, a radio guy, but at a live fight, we had a guy in our ear, Jordan. Uh, and that was a bit of a surprise. It worked well, but having somebody in your ear saying, hey guys, uh, five seconds to this or 10 seconds to this, or we're going to cut to this, or we're going to go to the, we're going to go to a replay. And there's a couple times where we would get it and say, okay guys, we're going to watch a replay. And the replay would be delayed, you know. And so what we kind of worked on 
it, it, as play-by-play and, and color is just flow. We've all seen, we've all watched NFL, and we've all seen at times where the replay doesn't come up when they want it to and stuff like right. that. So no, yeah. big, no, no big surprises. Just kind of keep it going. And something Bubba and I, I think did a good job of is have a conversation going, be talking about something, particularly about the fighting style or about commenting, particularly between rounds. That's when they would do it. So the round would break. You'd get about 45, 50 seconds of a break in between rounds. And so we would quickly try to get in there who we thought won the round and what we thought they could do to improve. And then usually by that 10 seconds, maybe 15 seconds, then usually by then Jordan was saying, hey, we have a replay for you. So we'd say, let's go to replay. If the replay was delayed for some reason, we would just usually keep the conversation going that we were already on. The replay would pop in, and then we would cut back to it. So that was kind of exciting. But one of the parts that I had never done before, I had done play-by-play and color commentary before, and I've been a, I've been a corner at both MMA and kickboxing, both amateur and professional. So I've kind of been around it a lot on some of the behind-the-scenes and in-cage and stuff like that. But I had never done in-cage interviews after the fight, post-fight in-cage interviews. And it really was what I thought it was going to be. It was exciting. It was fun. I knew from from being to a lot of live events that some of them have post-fight interview guys in there. Some of them don't. It just depends on the promotion. I was excited when Ryan asked me to do the post-fight interviews. Um, and, and what I thought was kind of cool was just something we actually talked about afterwards, you and I, Jim, is being in cage with amateur fighters minutes after they've stopped fighting and being in cage with Kama, the Death Star worthy, minutes after he stopped fighting, I noticed a big difference in the physique and, and his ability to speak calmly and not be out of breath. There was a couple of fighters that didn't even go the six minutes of an amateur. We'll say they fought maybe three and a half, four minutes. I get in there. And they were noticeably out of breath. Nothing against them. That was kind of cool. It was fun to be interviewing somebody that you could see some blood on them. You could see that they had just been in a fight. It was kind of interesting to be right there uh, and interviewing them. But then when I interviewed Kama, and he had just fought 15 minutes, uh, so much, much more than four or six-minute fight, he literally was talking as if he had just been out for a Sunday stroll. Um, and so that was kind of interesting. I, I'm assuming some of that breathing – came across the interview, but I'm guessing some of it was also me being there in person to kind of pick up on, on how out of breath they were. It'll be interesting to see some of those debuters. We, that's something that you've seen with Joe Rogan, who does the in-cage interviews. You'll hear him, or Dan Hardy, Dan Outlaw Hardy, you'll hear them sometimes reference the fighter's journey, like, hey, it's been great to see you grow, or it's great to see a couple of your last fights. I obviously wasn't able to say that, but I'm looking forward to maybe an amateur that debuted, Alan Liu debuted, right? You, that, was a, that was a great debut right? Um, for, a, for a stout fighter. He gave a great interview, a lot of good analysis, talked about Mike Wilkins from stout and some of the, some of the mindsets and the game plan. Really great interview. But I would love to interview him or, or some of those other debut guys in a couple more fights to be able to not only interview and ask them questions about how they're doing now, but also to physically see the change as their physique and as their conditioning improves, that'll just be a cool experience for me to experience. And, and one thing that you brought up when we, when we were interviewing Ethan Goss in our last podcast was that you really liked the respect among fighters. And something that is really cool to see in person is right after the hands go up. Uh, so Drew Shannon will read off the scorecards and the referee will, hold both fighters' hands. And sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not obvious who's going to win. They announce red corner, blue corner, the person's name. Right after that, I get the microphone from Drew Shannon. So I'm ready to go with the interview. But there's this beautiful moment, and, and the, the pay-per-view guys did a good job catching it, of the fighters usually embracing, shaking hands, sometimes bowing to each other, and then a quick scramble to – see the other people's corners and that's a big part of sportsmanship among fighters that you go to the other person's corner and and say good job or thank them for the fight and so that was kind of fun for me to be in there with the microphone ready to go but I kind of tried to judge how that interaction was going before I started saying and then usually by the time those interactions were starting to die down the state commissioner people from Pennsylvania start kind of ushering out usually the losing corner and the losing fighter 
they start kind of ushering them out. And then that's when I would say, Hey, I'm, I'm here with, and I would, and I would use that as kind of, I'm, I'm joined now, or I'm here with comma, the death star warrior, uh, worthy, the champion to kind of give them a heads up. Hey, we're going to be interviewing now. And that seemed to work pretty, that seemed to work pretty well. So one of the, another question I have for you is in regards to the crowd. I know uh, we have talked about this in the past. You'd mentioned being at different MMA events where the crowd was was large, medium-sized crowd, and then tiny crowds. Yeah. So with the crowd that we had, I'll say that I was very pleased to see the, the size of the crowd. You can't necessarily coach fans to get involved in the event. I know sometimes the ring announcer will say, you know, let's hear it for this yeah. fighter, that fighter. But I, I know being a cage side and hearing the crowd and the noise that they made at different points of, of the fight, you could feel them rising with the tension in the fight as it was building, especially in the last fight. Obviously, that was a title fight. But I was wondering, right. and I could hear it in uh, your voice and in Bubba's voice on the uh, pay-per-view later on. I was just curious if if you had a sense of what was going on with the crowd and their reaction to what was happening. Did you ever catch oh, yeah. yourself as being a fan and watching this, but you had to think, oh, wait, I have to, I've got to comment on this. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a weird thing. Having, having watched so many fights as a corner man or a coach, uh, you know, I would say I, I don't really go to many fights. There's probably been maybe a handful, maybe under a handful, maybe two or three regional MMA that I've been to that I wasn't a coach. And most of those I was going to either scout other fighters or support a fighter I know. Like I, I went to a CFFC fight at the uh, Tropicana uh, at a resort and casino in Atlantic City to see Joe, Joe Stripland fight because that was his retirement heavyweight fight uh, down there. It was a huge crowd. It was great. But it felt weird for me to just be there as a fan because I'm so used to, to analyzing. So to me, I think being at an event where I'm doing broadcasting kind of is perfect for me because I've gone to events as a fan and I'm already in my mind trying to coach the fighters, both sides. I don't care if I, if I know you or don't know you. I'm trying to think, oh, and, and that's the nice part of being color is I'm able to, to say – you know, it'd be really great if the red corner right now would start mixing in low kicks. Or, you know, I think the blue corner is really trying to set this up. And, and that's how a coach's brain thinks anyhow, is what could my fighter be doing better and what could their opponent be doing better? You never want to just think, Bob and I were talking about this on the broadcast, every fight that made it out of the first round, the second round changed, right? Second round changed. Sometimes completely because of corner coaching and the game plan changed, and sometimes subtly, like not, not maybe a huge change, but a subtle change. But there was a lot, like Ethan Goss, um, he did a great first round with pretty much all stand-up, and I was talking about his kicks and how diverse they were, and he was going for some spinning stuff, and, and he had a little slight reach disadvantage, and so you know that was going on, and then the second round comes out, and he takes, he takes his opponent down, ends up submitting him. And when we interviewed him in cage and then later on this podcast, he talked about the game planning and about his corners. But it, but it's exciting for me to be at a live event and be able to kind of know that I'm hopefully helping people that are watching the pay-per-view kind of not just look at what's happening, but look at what's not happening or what could be happening. And that's kind of, I, I made a comment, I think it was the first or second amateur fight. Hey, you don't really see a lot of amateurs doing feints. A feint is when you fake a punch. Usually at the amateur, particularly at the debut level, pretty much every punch or kick is thrown with full intention, which makes sense. They're just trying to, to feel it out, figure it out. But there were some really great moments. I think it was with Alan Liu, actually. I think it was that fight where he was doing some, uh, he and his opponent uh, were doing some feints, which was cool, and I got to point that out. But getting back to you with the crowd, Yes, you can definitely feel the crowd. I say feel because you feel a little bit more vibrations from the crowd because we have we have a table and you can kind of feel at times that, that they would start shaking it. Plus, I had some fans maybe a foot behind me. Every once in a while, we get bumped by the crowd. But you are wearing headphones, 
And so the headphones are designed to noise cancel, just like if you were listening to music, um, and just give you, and it's very important. I've done a play-by-play once where I, where I wasn't on headphones and it was very hard. The, the headphones are really for me to hear Baba and for Baba to hear me. Because I did a play-by-play once where we were both just on like handheld mics without headphones. And so we could talk into the mic, but the crowd was so loud that we couldn't hear what each other was saying. And we couldn't, we couldn't kind of figure out where we were. And so you were able to say something, but it's like you're saying it without being able to hear it, which gets very hard to kind of figure out what's being said and what's not being said. And we ended up overlapping each other. And that's something that Bubba and I, because of the noise-canceling headphones, we hear the crowd but we actually hear each other and yourself, which you have to get used to hearing yourself, but it's kind of cool to hear yourself because it, it, it kind of connects to what you're saying a little bit more when, when you hear yourself, there's just a little bit of a delay, which can be interesting. But yeah, we definitely felt the crowd. And there were times whereas um, announcers where you kind of felt like perfect timing where Bubba would say, you know, Luke, when this guy comes out, we're going to hear the crowd go, because he's from Cannonsburg. There was a Mark Schrader is a gym owner that owns a gym and trains at MV gym right in the actual venue of Printscape and that and that building. And so Bubba knew this and Bubba started talking about it and said, Oh, when he comes out, you're gonna hear the crowd. And then they hear the crowd go. It's it's like a perfect timing. And there's times I've watched the UFC and I thought, did they edit it? Like because Joe was gonna say, and now when Brock Lesnar comes out, you're gonna hear and oh, there it goes. But it's just kind of fun to know that the crowd's there. It's something that you just will not get. I made a comment to Bubba at the very beginning when we were talking about uh, the crew from the New York MMA and Fitness Experiment. Shout out to them. They brought four fighters down, and that was every fight for the amateur had a uh, New York MMA and Fitness guy on it. So they they really came to came to play, and they they went two and two on the night. But anyhow. We were talking about how, and I made the comment that when I root for the Steelers, no matter how much I want to think that they care, I'm just yelling at a screen, right? They don't hear it. When you're live at an event, whether it be a Steelers game or a fight, they really do hear it. And there were a couple moments where a fighter from a gym that wasn't closed, particularly a New York fighter, uh, we had a fighter from Indiana and a fighter from uh, Nebraska. When they came out, there was definitely a noticeable drop in the volume. And I remember the time I had a fighter fight for a title in New Jersey for a kickboxing title a couple of years back. And the only people that were rooting for him was myself and the corner and him. I had three people in the whole building that wanted him. And so when he came out, it was completely silence. And then when his opponent came out, it was like crazy. And it, it does definitely do something to you. I'm not going to say it's impossible to fight well when you don't have the crowd because because there's a little bit of a chip. Most fighters fight with a little bit of chip on their shoulder anyhow. So if you're coming down from New York, and we interviewed some of those guys, and they were talking about how it was great to come down with their, with their team and kind of have an event where they all went on the road together. So I don't really think that affected them too much because they kind of expect to come out and not really get a fan welcome because they're from, you know, they're, they're from out of the area. Um, and, and there was sometimes, as a coach, when I was yelling, when, I, when I'm trying to corner, I actually don't mind it when the crowd's a little quiet because then I feel like my guy can hear him. Me a little bit better. There's been times where, where a fight, and certainly the Kama Worthy fight, that'll be interesting when we interview him, how much of, of his, I think he said he actually does hear his corner from time to time. But there are certainly times where the crowd, from a fighter standpoint, can get very exciting. I know Donald Cowboy Cerrone always says, how much he loves the crowd, and of course, how much the crowd loves him. But as a coaching standpoint, there would certainly be times where the crowd becomes challenging depending on what you're trying to communicate. And I've been in corners, between corners, and some of the between corners were loud. Most of the time, your between corners kind of drop down because there's not much to cheer about uh, in the corner, you know, between the rounds. But occasionally, the crowd will still be in it. With the comma fight, they definitely were. And with some of the other fights, they were in it. And so I know from being a corner that there are times where even during the break, you have to kind of lean and yell right into your fighter's ear or otherwise they can't hear them. So I do think fighters love the crowd because after all, they fight for the crowd. One of the fighters made a comment that he'd fight 
without a crowd. I think it was Alan Liu or one of the guys said that they'd fight in a basement without a crowd. Some guys are like that, but some guys need the crowd. I'd say Kama really enjoys the, enjoyed the crowd. He had a lot of his ninjas, he called them, his young students that he was right. training there. Yeah. You could hear when he gave him a shout-out that they yelled back. And, and you saw this probably most famously to me was Stipe. When Stipe defended his belt against Overeem in Cleveland, was nuts, right? It was nuts. It was crazy. Started yelling, OH, OH. I mean, it was just nuts. And the crowd was insane. And when he knocked over him out, that you couldn't hear anything. It was just, it was so crazy. So I do think that there is a role of the crowd. But I also know that sometimes when you think of like a Chael Sonnen and you think of some of the fighters, they actually like going into hostile crowds. Um, uh, Connor would talk about that when he was building up to fighting uh, to fighting Scarface that, you know, Aldo had all of Brazil behind him. And, you know, there's times where, where people like to go into a hostile uh, territory like Brazil where people are screaming in Portuguese, you're going to die and stuff like that mm-hmm. to silence the crowd. So it's an inter- the crowd is very exciting. I'd say that that by far really makes the environment worth it because when you're at, when you're at home doing a pay-per-view, as great as that is, and I'd be excited to see how far the pay-per-view can go for 247 Fighting Championships, and I'm sure Ryan has plans to promote it, but being live is just such a different experience. I was at UFC 203. I, I know what you're talking about with the rise of the crowd and that sudden heartfelt moment where it looked like Overeem was going to win. And you could just feel the air collectively being sucked out of the crowd. This big, gigantic 12,000, 14,000 or whatever it was strong, just like holding their breath. What's going to happen? And I do recall a few with that, and I believe that was in uh, in the fight between Kama Worthy and Joey Munoz. But for, for myself, watching UFC, I know that watching certain fighters, you know, we've heard fighters and talking to them that, like Ethan Goss, we just talked to him. He said he doesn't want to give out his game plan, understandably. But everybody has tendencies. And when you're watching a fight and something happens, you kind of know where that fight is is going to go, what road it's going to go down based on who's in control at the, at the time. Right. Most times I would think that you can't get that in a regional event because you've got the amateurs on the card, you've got the pros, some are making their debut. They're not as well known as, right. as, as the stars of UFC and Bellator. So for me, it, it was interesting in watching that because you don't know where that – fight is going to go is it going to go to the ground is it going to be like with right. and his kicking and is it going to be a, a slugfest like you know joey had talked about joey munoz had yeah. talked about with his his bare knuckles experience and i was just wondering if at any point during the fights where you could feel like the fight was going somewhere and then suddenly it took uh, a right turn or a, a 180 away from what was actually happening well i uh, i had a great moment where right before one of the rounds, I, t- I said to Baba, Baba, you know, that whole first round was striking. I wouldn't be surprised. I wish I could remember which fight it was. It was, it was early. It was an amateur. It was maybe the second or third fight. I said, I wouldn't be surprised if so-and-so comes out and goes right for a takedown. And as I say that, that's what he was doing. And, and Bob was like, wow, you called that. I mean, yeah, there's definitely times where MMA is, and I've said this on this podcast before, MMA has so many ways to win, but also so many ways to lose. Right, right. And T-City, you know, T-City, when he was coming up, Brandon Ortega, Ortega, when he was coming up, T-City, he had that insane guillotine finish at the very end where he just kind of jumped up. He was The guy was uh, ground and pound, and he was able to get the guillotine and finish him out. And so, like, you never really – a guy dove, one of his opponents, I can never say his last name, he's a Brazilian, he dove in. And exposed his neck in the last like 30 seconds of a fight where T-City was losing. It was right before he went on his roll. But anyhow, and, and T-City kind of said like he shouldn't have done that. And that would be an example of, I'll give you an example. It was the Jamie Hare versus Adam Oatman fight. So if you check that out, that's on the undercard. I, I think the, the pay-per-view would still be available for uh, around $15, $16. I'm not quite sure what it was. That but is correct. For those of 
for those of you that are listening, maybe you'll go check it out and see. But anyway, it was one of the amateur fights. Jamie Hare was from New York. Adam Oatman was from the from the area. And Jamie Hare, all we knew uh, was that he was 1-0 as MMA. And there was a knockout in the first round. And that he hadn't fought in like three years. So I wasn't quite sure how it was going to go. But when you saw the physique of Jamie Hare and you thought, oh, my goodness, this kind of, I'm mean, not quite as cut, but sort of looking like Rumble Johnson, like a guy that just that is real thick and just wants to really punch hard. And so that's what the first round went with. And he had Adam open a couple different times, stumbling backwards or at least eating some shots. And then, um, and then I'd say that's like probably the fight that points out cardio the most in the sense that uh, we actually saw this happen. If you remember way back, we're going way back to Brock Lesnar uh, versus Shane Carwin. When Shane Carwin came out in the second round and was so gassed that Brock Lesnar finished him with a triangle, right? Right, uh, right. Side And that was probably a similar, obviously they're much bigger guys, but a similar situation where Jamie Hare, uh, remember Bubba made the comment in between the first round and I did as well, that he didn't throw any technical punches. They're all good punches, but they're all loaded, what we call loaded up punches. Um, and he didn't really throw any punches, mix them in. for You, you got you to throw some punches for touch or for technique and not for power. But anyhow, he threw all power punches. And then in the second round, clearly just did not, he burned himself out, did not have the energy. And Oatman went for a gorgeous, I think that was the standing guillotine, if I remember right, which I think I have right. Uh, That's correct, it was, yes. It was great. Oatman had the standing guillotine. And, and I asked Oatman afterwards because, he was in a situation, for those of you that know Akiatine, he was in a situation where he could have dropped under into full guard, where he could have kind of shot his hips underneath uh, Jamie Hare and grabbed him in to kind of finish. But instead, he, he finished it standing. Um, and he just said that's something he does a lot in the gym. And that's actually something that you brought up. Hey, is there a, a change? Is there a, a change where the fight changes? And I'd say, yeah, a lot of these guys chain things together in practice. So they'll go from top top mount to this finish or they'll go from bottom guard to a sweep to this finish or this counter and in Oatman's case he clearly was used to getting into a position and jumping to standing up to standing guillotine and that was something he was comfortable with we we, we interviewed Ethan Goss we know Ethan Goss was very focused on the rear naked choke right because you had done some research and you asked him and you had talked to him about the fact that his opponent had only lost to rear naked chokes, right? Right. Yeah. And something that Ethan talked about uh, in our last podcast that was so great was that he knew the fight was turning. And, and, and I actually called it very exciting, but he got so focused on the rear naked that his opponent was able to roll out of it. It was, it was maybe about 40 seconds before the finish uh, where he got the rear naked a second time. But he talked on our podcast about how he hadn't set his hooks. And, and one of the things that happens a lot, particularly in the ground, it can definitely happen stand-up as well, but that's a lot faster. But usually on the ground in the BJJ and grappling and submissions and all that, usually what happens is there's a fairly quick change uh, for the worse for one opponent, right? Because if you remember Ronda Rousey with her arm bars, people would go from not being in an arm bar to being finished like that. I mean, two seconds later, the fight's over or their arm's broken, you know? And so I definitely think there's times where you can see, like in, in Ethan Goss's case, he got to a position where he knew the rear naked choke was going to work, rushed it, didn't get his hook set. The guy rolled out of it, but then he went right back to it. And if you rewatch that, that finish, and Bubba made a comment, I talked about it, that fin finish shows just how quickly a rear naked choke applied correctly can go on because it was not applied to being finished in probably under two seconds. Uh, he had the double He had the double hooks. He did kind of a roll with the rear naked, really deep, really well cinched, the, the top lion kill type, the lion kill type uh, grab, uh, which is the top hand on the top of the head. And, um, and he was tapped almost immediately. So when you see that, there's times that you'll see the tide shifting. To, to kind of wrap up on this, we both are big Stipe fans. I'm a huge Stipe fan. And I didn't realize you were there live. Now I'm just jealous. Now I'm just jealous of you, which is a sin. So I have to work on that. But anyhow, the Stipe thing was a great example. What you're talking about when 
Overeem hit him with a straight, and, and Stipe just sat right down on his butt, got knocked. You, you can't say out because he stayed kind of in seating position, but he kind of went just straight down onto his butt, and his arm, one arm went limp, which is not a good sign. One arm kind of went limp. Yeah, there was, was able- uh, some controversy there where after the yeah. fight, they, they talked to Overeem, and he said that yeah. he thought that, uh, that Stipe tapped. And I remember um, yeah. Brock talking to him in the ring, and I feel like well, – I don't know if that was the one where he said he wasn't going to talk to – Yeah, and- yeah, that's the one. He's already gone back on that. Uh, Joe yeah. Rogan and, – and, and I've thought about this doing the in-cage interviews – Joe Rogan has pressure to interview people, and I get it, after they lose, particularly a title fight. We didn't do any interv- interviewing the, 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 the losers. I, I did think I was probably going to interview Kama Worthy had he lost just because he was a local guy um, fighting for the belt, and I knew that he had sold a bunch of tickets. I knew that he had a lot of people there. So I kind of had it in my mind that if, that if I thought Kama had lost, I was going to go to him in the cage and say, hey, do you want an interview? And, but uh, yeah, but no, that was a great that was a great situation. But basically, what, what happened was when when Overeem hit him with that straight, Stipe goes down to his butt, one arm kind of limp. He's able to post up on his good arm and kind of kind of go forward to try to get back up. Overeem jumped on him and went for the guillotine, where he was able to get out of it, uh, and and that's where Overeem thought he attacked. But in that whole exchange, the the punch to the guillotine, absolutely, that's how quick things can change. And and credit to Overeem actually for following up what I call the Donald Cowboy Cerrone approach. And, and if you look at Donald Cowboy Cerrone's fight, he has a high number of finishes, but he's not a great takedown guy. What he does is he knocks him down, chokes him out. The, the Edson Barbosa fight was an incredible example. Oh, yeah. Oh, awesome. my goodness. Just a, just a great example. So I do think some of the, of the fight changes are going to happen in the pro level where the kicks are more dynamic, where you could use who can't forget Travis Brown. I referenced Travis Brown in the amateur fights because there was a, a fighter that was posted up, uh, kind of sprawled out, uh, hipped into or butt low into the cage for defense. And, and his opponent was wrapped around his leg with, with a double, kind of like a stalled or a failed double leg takedown attempt. And what Travis Brown did on a run up for a couple fights is he knocked guys out in that position. But you can't do that at the amateur level. So I remember pointing that out. So I do think that MMA is so exciting as a fan, as a a commentator, as a coach. I, as a coach, I've never felt more nervous. I was excited as a commentator. It's great to see it. It was fun to be able to yell at Bubba and say, hey, Bubba, this could happen or that could happen, and then to see what would happen. But, man, as a coach – the adrenaline level of the nerves is so much higher. If my fighter put his head down, even in an amateur fight, stalled up against the cage with a failed double double leg, I wouldn't want him to get used to that. So I'd be yelling at him as if he was a pro because what you'll see is you'll see a lot of wrestling-based amateurs. It'll be interesting when 247 has their first amateur go pro, which is probably several several events away. Uh, but I've seen that happen. I've, I've, I've covered guys, and I've also – trained guys that went from amateur to pro and one of the things that happens in in mma is if you're a an amateur grappler heavy wrestler takedown approach and you get used to pushing opponents up into the cage in a in a a stalled double leg takedown and you're used to putting your head on their head at the pro level they're going to knock you out with travis brown elbow and and so it's it, it is very exciting to kind of see how mma can switch so quickly because of the dynamicsness but i guess at this point we've talked a lot it's very exciting. Both of us were completely impressed by what Ryan Middleton did. And we were both very honored to be a part of you physically building the cage and, and, and doing all that you did to kind of coordinate the actual uh, facility and, and, and what was able to be there. And then for me to be able to be in cage and do the commentary was just a real honor and real privilege to be a part of a great event. And so it's been great. And we hope to continue to have fighters come on uh, both after their fight, before their fight, um, and, and continue to, to follow regional MMA as well as some of the big, some of the big national MMA pr- pr- promotions as well. Yeah, I just have, I have one more question for you. It's kind of a silly question. Nothing really in-depth, or I should say pertaining to the actual commentating. Um, and then I'll let okay. you wrap it up. But, um, you know, hockey players come playoff time. 
they grow the beard. Um, we know uh, in recent years, you know, some football players started doing that in the NFL. Um, some baseball players, they won't touch, they won't, you know, step on the, uh, the chalk line when they uh, come on the field mm -hmm. and off the field. I was just curious if you had any, I don't know if it's superstitions or routines that you go through. I know, you know, you and I, and in general, we don't believe in those superstitions, but no, no, no. we still fall into patterns and things, you know, that uh, that keep us comfortable, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a, yeah, that's a good question. I have uh, I have two things. One is I wear a lot of dress vests, like the three piece suit, like the under dress vest, a lot, pretty much every day. Sometimes I'll even put one on on a Saturday when I'm not working. I wear dress vests all the time. And so one of the things that I did intentionally to kind of make me feel comfortable and also to kind of pick out sort of my image or how I'd look because I knew I was doing the um, – I knew I was doing the weigh-ins and I knew I was doing – I knew I was doing the in-cage interviews. So I called up Ryan and I said, hey, do you want me in a suit? You know, Bruce Buffer always wears a suit. Do you want me in a suit? And he's like, no. Uh, you know, you kind of go with what feel or what makes you comfortable because you're, you're going to be doing the commentating. And obviously, Bubba kind of has his style from being a radio DJ and radio announcer. So I kind of decided, because I am very comfortable in vests. I'm wearing a vest right now. Um, and I, I really like vests. So I kind of made it in my mind. Every time I'm doing anything official related to MMA, I'm going to be wearing a vest. That's kind of kind of be something that makes me comfortable and also sort of a fashion and a choice. And then the other thing, that's probably the bigger thing, and the other smaller thing was just that I was struggling with some voice issues, having some sore throat, and also dealing with, we mentioned it, um, we mentioned it when we were talking to Ethan Goss, right, that I'm a track coach at the college level, and I actually came right from a track meet at Slippery Rock. So kind of the exciting part of my day was that I got up, you were already awake, working on the cage, I got up at six, jumped on the road, drove up to Slippery Rock, uh, coached at Slippery Rock for my team, and then left there at three. Drove the hour from Slippery Rock to to uh, Printscape, uh, changed in the bathroom into my into my non-coaching gear and my interview gear, and then we started doing and then we started doing the tests and stuff at four. And then the fight was at seven. Um, so what I did is I had hot honey water. I'm a big hot honey water uh, fan, and I guess I'll probably take that with me to all of my future announcing because it is nice some people drink tea i drink hot honey water i really warm honey water i really like what how it does to my throat i wasn't planning on making that a part that was more of a last minute emergency thing uh because i had gotten a sore throat and i knew i was gonna be outside yelling at track for most of the morning and so i wanted something to kind of soothe my throat so i'd say those were my two the suit uh the uh the suit vest is kind of my thing and and also probably the hot honey water. And actually, Bubba was drinking. He was drinking a type of drink. It was a fruit drink. I forget the name of it. But he was saying that's what he always drinks when he's on the air. No matter what he's doing, he's always drinking that. It wasn't soda. It was some type of fruit drink. So I'd say that probably the hot honey water and then my vest would be my two things. More importantly, though, you were rocking a two a bright red two four seven fighting championship shirt and i know you had the choice between the black and the red why'd you go red well at, at one point in my life um this is going back a few years i was a <laughs> redhead so <laughs> that has changed over the years now where it has faded to just um around the years and below but uh, i've always liked red uh ryan ryan middleton had said you know we'd like to do um, certain people in red and then uh, everybody oh. else in black. And so red really stood out, at, at least oh, in yeah. my opinion. And that's why I chose that. Oh, it did. Well, that's very, that's very nice. We'll have to wait to see kind of if that becomes your signature at the, at the events um, or not, uh, as far as, as, you know, as far as the organizer always wearing bright red, but this has been great. This has been exciting. Uh, we really, appreciate everybody that listens to the podcast or that checks out the website. I know you're working on a website that's going to be improved, which is great. Our, our Facebook page is now live. So if you're hearing this, like our Facebook page, uh, which is MMA FanCast, and we just broke 100 likes. And hopefully soon we'll be talking about breaking 500 likes and maybe soon 1,000 likes. But 
it's really fun to see the, the platform grow. Um, and so keep listening to us. We're going to be coming with an interview soon, hopefully, uh, with Kama Worthy. We want to get him on. He's the first ever professional champ uh, for 247, and we did a pre-fight interview with him. We really want to get him on. And then we're obviously going to be trying to get Ryan Middleton on. Um, and then at some point, Jim and I have talked about doing a call-in, like a fan call-in. If we do a fan call-in uh, podcast, we will promote it to get fans with their thoughts on either regional MMA or UFC or Bellator. We'll kind of do an anything goes. So we hope to do that maybe within the month, month and a half range. So keep listening to us. This is Luke Basin and Jim Mooney thanking you for listening to MMA FanCast.